0: NGOs. The acronym is thrown around left, right and centre, and we all just accept it and move on. But how and why have NGOs become so important, particularly in post-conflict zones? I'm Martin Beeney, and this is 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. Patrice McMahon is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She studies the role of NGOs, particularly in relation to the period following wars and conflicts. Her new book is The NGO Game, Post-Conflict Peacebuilding in the Balkans and Beyond. Patrice joins us to discuss what NGOs are, how they act, and why they're important to our world. Welcome, Patrice. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, tell us a little bit about NGOs, because I think... I think a lot of us probably have a very um, strange, or not strange, a, a, an unclear uh, sense of what an NGO is. So to give us a little bit more of a, a clarity.
1: Well, and probably for good reason. So the <laughs> actual definition of a non-governmental organization for the United Nations is quite simple. It's a non-profit voluntary citizens group, which can work either at the local, the national, or international level to address uh, an issue in support of a public good. so it's it's a very big, vague definition. and so an NGO could really mean any organization that is not directly controlled by a state. So I think the confusion is um, or lies in the fact that an NGO could be anything from care international, to the Islamic relief organizations to a local women's group, um, or even, Um, a human rights organization. So it's a really heterogeneous group of different kinds of actors that are really all kind of bound together by the fact that they're not directly controlled by a state, but they can receive funding from states. So it's a really diverse group of actors that address a variety of issues, human rights issues, environmental issues, advocacy, humanitarian work, the environment, so it's a really big group of different kinds of organizations.
0: Yeah, so how do we, as a public, get our, I mean, how do we get our heads around this? Because, it, like you said, that seems like a, essentially, almost anything could be an NGO. Right. Any, almost anything could be.
1: and In some countries, in fact, like Russia and China, um, non-governmental organizations are Maybe they're not directly controlled by the state, but they're indirectly controlled and financed by the state. So it's really problematic. What I do in my book is I talk about local non-governmental organizations, organizations that do receive funding from abroad, from foreign governments or from international groups and foundations from other countries that are genuinely controlled, directed, and led by local citizens and citizens' groups And then I look at large international NGOs. It's not a perfect way to clarify this very diverse group, but in my book, I I try to talk about the difference between these international groups that, in fact, receive most of the money from uh, Western governments and the United Nations and then these local initiatives that often are working very much at a local level and receive some funding, but really are not big players. So I kind of divide it up by their budgets, Hmm. international and small local.
0: Okay, okay, great. So your book also, I mean, the the essence, I think, is is to look at the the post-conflict situation in the Balkans. Is that correct?
1: That's right. And and what I do is look at specifically at Bosnia after 1995, after the Dayton Peace Accords were signed and international actors led by the United States And EU countries got involved in Bosnia and post. um, And in 1999, when uh, NATO-led forces intervened in Kosovo in March of 1999, and then um, created the Kosovo Protection Forces KFOR in Kosovo. So it was post-conflict in the sense that this I look at the period when international actors made a conscious decision to get involved with military force, economic assistance, and political
0: assistance. So, so this is going to sound sort of somewhat, um, oh, bias isn't the right word, uh, you know, maybe just ignorance, I suppose. But it, I feel as though the, the Balkan conflict uh, has sort of passed away from most people's radar now, just because maybe of time passing or whatever it is. So is that why NGOs get involved? You know, that's too simple. I realise, but is that part of the reason that you know it sort of disappears from the media and the public conscience? But there are groups that still need to or want to be involved as a result, in a way.
1: Well, actually, um, NGOs were involved in the Balk- in the Balkans right. Well, during when the conflict was going on. This what I talk about in my book is what happened in the nineteen nineties not only in the United States, but in Western European countries, and really throughout the world, there was this explosion of non-state actors and this real growth of non-governmental organizations. And governments, in an effort to try to subcontract out kind of some of their services and not get directly involved in some of the violence that was happening in the Balkans, decided it was a conscious decision in the Clinton administration and in Western European countries to try to give more money and more power and more authority to NGOs to help with post-conflict reconstruction, to help with humanitarian assistance, and then as the violence stopped, to help with reconstruction and development and democracy promotion. So NGOs were involved when the conflict was ongoing um, in a humanitarian capacity, and then when the violence ended, NGOs, and, and I'm not just hundreds, thousands of NGOs were um Kind of landed in the Balkans, were created in the Balkans to try to promote reconstruction and development, and, and that was, in a uh, in a way, so that governments didn't directly have to do it themselves. So they've been involved since the mid 1990s in the Balkans, and to to some extent still today. Um, although because there's been lots of other conflicts and crises in other parts of the world, there is this kind of shift where NGOs go from one crisis to another crisis. So um, as things started to wind down and money started to dry up in the Balkans, um, some of the very same NGOs gravitated gravitated toward Afghanistan and then to Iraq and now are in other places as well. There's, I talk about this professionalization of NGOs that often do many good things in conflict or post-conflict environments, but really because they receive funding from governments or international organizations, they kind of have to follow a crisis. Hmm. So there's less attention in the Balkans because there's less money for the Balkans because there's so many other places and so many other humanitarian crises emerging that NGOs are gravitating to those crises.
0: Right. So was the Balkans, uh, both the, the actual conflict and then the immediate aftermath sort of the is it fair to say in a way that, that was the sort of the genesis of the modern ngo phenomenon
1: actually that's almost exactly what one author describes it as the heyday for ngos hmm. because there was a lot of it was a period in the 1990s where the united states wasn't sure how it wanted to use its power It also wanted to focus on other kind of domestic issues, but there were these emerging crises that were happening, and there was a greater ability, a greater ease for citizens' organizations to be able to connect. So this associational, what we call the associational revolution and this growth of non-state, non-governmental organizations really started happening at the end of the 1980s. So as these crises started to evolve, it was easier for groups, say, in Bosnia to reach out to foundations in the United States or to international organizations and say, we're doing these things in our community, can you provide us with funding? So a, a lot of things were happening at the same time in the 1990s that facilitated this growth of NGOs.
0: So, it, I mean, part of it, it sounds the, as though a part of it was that... Uh, national, state governments were becoming less um, interventionalist in themselves, and therefore there was sort of a vacuum for this kind of thing, and therefore NGOs popped up. Is that, am I getting that right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think okay. there was this combination of different things that were happening. A gover- governments and states' unwillingness mm-hmm. to become too involved, as well as the growth of non-state actors. And then international NGOs that saw this as a real opportunity. Um, You know, this was the heyday for NGOs. They saw that governments didn't want to get too involved. The United States, at least during the Clinton administration, was talking about, you know, assertive multilateralism, getting other countries, getting other actors involved. So it didn't have to do it alone as a way of sharing some of the burden. Um, But also NGOs saw this as an opportunity for them as self-interested professional organizations that do many good things to increase their power, prestige, and budgets to be able to work internationally. So I think there were a combination of things happening. Um, and in my book, I talk about, you know, NGOs in the 1990s. It was good timing, you know, right. combination of states wanting to withdraw, NGOs realizing this there was this vacuum and there were all these crises and no one or no actor was able to address.
0: Okay. So... Um kind of looking at the, the present and into the future, when, when, uh, when NGOs hear um, the U.S. President, President Trump, talking about America first and, and sort of, you know, whether or not that actually happens, but this sort of withdrawal away from some of the international community, do you think NGOs are poised once again for a, um, a boom or a heyday, or is that, you know, making too much of it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I guess um, what we're seeing is the United States spending less money on for, or, or threatening to spend less money on foreign assistance and less money on foreign aid and for international NGOs. However, other countries, Western European countries, as well as emerging or rising powers, Brazil, India, spending more money on foreign assistance and NGOs. So I think that NGOs are concerned about what's happening in the United States, but are getting, surprisingly, more support from countries that in the past hadn't received some support. What we're also seeing, which I think is the reason for optimism, um, is the growth of of non-governmental organizations from developing countries. So countries, one of the largest NGOs, in fact, is an NGO that comes out of Bangladesh, and it's um, a, an organization that works at, on rural development, the Bangladesh Rural uh, Advancement Committee. And so we're seeing NGOs kind of diversify, so it's not just non-governmental organizations that are coming from the United States and Western Europe, but non-governmental organizations that are emerging in India, finding funding internationally, but also maybe from local sources or local government or or government of India, as well as foundations and private sources in India. So I think what we're we're seeing are maybe some more uh, genuinely indigenous non-governmental organizations addressing public issues and, and problems, maybe in a more realistic and helpful way, rather than some of the NGOs in the past, which were really dominated by North America and Western Europe kind of doing good in countries, but often not having a lot of experience and often not um, being part of the, of the local context.
0: Hmm. Well, it sounds as though you are optimistic uh, for the sort of the, the, the near-term future of NGOs and the uh, maybe diversification of where the money is coming from and support. So hopefully uh, that will continue. Patrice, thank you very much for joining us this morning. That was Patrice McMahon, author of The NGO Game, post-conflict peacebuilding in the Balkans and beyond. You can find Patrice's book at your favourite bookstore or your preferred online vendor, or you can order direct from us. To save 30% on your order, visit cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter 09POD when you check out. You've been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.